Thanks for tuning in to our Cypress Church podcast. To learn more about our church, visit our website at cypresschurch.net and join us for our Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. Subscribe on iTunes for more. Well, good morning all. I'm Ron Jackson. I'm one of your pastors on staff here. And it's uh, my turn to be able to share with you some of the Christmas story and all. So thank you for being here on this day putting off your Christmas shopping just a little bit longer. Uh, I know you've got the credit cards warmed up and ready to go, but just kind of hang in there. You'll get to the mall before all the sales are over with along that line. Uh, I find it funny at this time of year when I watch the commercials on television. Um, I didn't see too many commercials for Thanksgiving, but they went right over that, right into Christmas and all that. And such a contrast. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to be able to draw pictures of Santa in a sleigh, the reindeer and all those things. Nowadays, the reindeer have their own Mercedes-Benz. And Santa's got a Mercedes-Benz. But I've yet to see them fly. He needs to go back to the reindeer, people. The, the Mercedes-Benz don't fly. And that kid that wakes up every Christmas morning and runs out to the driveway to see if he has a new Mercedes. What kind of a kid is twisted like that? <laughs> When I was his age, I'd deal with a Chevy 2 in my driveway, you know, and the keys to the car and an AM radio. It's kind of like, yeah, I got something great. Uh, my wife didn't get a Mercedes for this Christmas. She's not going to. <laughs> I don't believe in buying foreign cars. Um, but I did get my wife a AAA card. So, you know, come on, just automotive. It's wonderful for her. And if you've seen her drive, you know she needs one. I will need a ride home after service today. So, yeah. In fact, maybe nobody will take me home after that comment along that line. One of my favorite things about Christmas, though, is to watch the kids open up their gifts. And when the adults open up their gifts, um, I'm always kind of leery of what my friends may have bought me, my adult friends. And my favorite phrase when I open up a gift from a friend is, oh, the receipt's in the box if it doesn't fit. Yes, I like that idea. Nobody knows my colors or what I really like along that line. My wife's got it down pretty pat. What I'd like to do today is when I take us to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, you forgot to bring it today, but you have your shopping bag with you, uh, put your shopping bag down. The ushers have Bibles, they can give it to you. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 2 is the second page, depending how thick the paper is. So uh, it's not a hard chapter to find, chapter 2. I want to put flesh into these stories. I want to blow these characters up so you see what it's really like for them at this time. In these 18 verses, we rush through them so quickly, we don't get a good idea of what's really going on in the life of these people. These were real people. They breathed air. They ate food. They sweated. They got joyful. They got, they got worried about things. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful story we're going to look at, but I want to blow them up. I'm going to take us from Bethlehem to uh, uh, um, Babylon, back to Bethlehem, and eventually end up in Egypt. So hope you get your passports so we can get there and back along that line. But notice the first verse here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Egypt in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That is a lot of story in one verse. As you know from the book of Luke, we know when Jesus was born in the stable in Bethlehem, the shepherds came and told Mary of all the rejoicing they saw of the angels. 
Think of poor Mary and Joseph. They had been told that they had to go from Nazareth where they lived to Bethlehem because that's where David was born. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor at the time, and he wanted to count everybody. And why do kings and presidents want to count everybody? So they can tax them. Okay, this wasn't a pleasant experience. But they had, by law, they had to go back. And Mary and Joseph had also gone through this terrible, traumatic, emotional experience. They had been engaged. Mary becomes pregnant through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the village knows that Joseph and Mary are distressed by all this, so stressed that they need angels to come and talk to them and said, just relax, you're going to marry this woman and move forward. So before they leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, somehow a rabbi must have married them in a little private ceremony. They're married by this time, and they head off for Bethlehem. It's a long road to Bethlehem, and Mary is great with child. In fact, she arrives just in time. And she arrives at a time of the day, perhaps, or the night even, when David's family couldn't even meet him there. This is where David was born. He must have had brothers and sisters or some relatives that lived in Bethlehem, but no one was there to greet them. Was it the shame of him taking a woman who already had a baby? Was it the shame that, you know, that hadn't done it the right way? We don't know. But Mary and Joseph finds this little place in a stable and have their first child. Mary's girlfriends aren't there to help her rejoice. Mary's mother's not there to help with the baby. Just the two of them. Is this God's plan? What a harsh thing for them to go through. And even though the angels were coming and rejoicing about that, it was the shepherds who saw the angels. And they came to the baby in the manger and gave him adoration and praise. They were so grateful for that, and Mary treasured these things. But now in Matthew chapter 2, probably a year has gone by at this point. Mary and Joseph had finally settled into what we call pleasant and, and routine living. Mary was able to meet with some girlfriends and build relationships in Bethlehem, have some meals with people, and get to know everybody around her, probably help some other young mothers give birth to their children. Life had become routine for them, peaceful and quiet. Mary probably loved the idea that we finally found a home and it's quiet here and joyful here. Small town living, how joyful that can be. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Nebraska to visit our older daughter to see how she's doing. And we loved the scenery on the way there, and we were with her for, a, for about a week there. And one of those days, I picked up a newspaper from Kearney, Nebraska. What's going on in Kearney? And I was delighted when I opened up the paper, the whole front page, the whole front page of this paper were pictures of high school students and junior high students from all over Kearney taking care of the homeless in Kearney. They showed the kids you know, collecting food, checking the dates on the cans, wiping everything down and putting it on the shelves. They showed them rolling sleeping bags and blankets for the homeless people. All the kids' names were listed. Not a single murder, not a single car accident or drunk thing. All about the children of Kearney and what they were doing for the people. When I read that, I thought, what a great place to live. For neighbors, no neighbors, and kids, children, and the children were praised by the newspaper for the fact that they did well for others. 
It's fun to go through that experience. This is the kind of experience that Mary was having and Joseph were having here in Bethlehem, enjoying this quiet year of experience. When they first arrived in Bethlehem, they'd have had to go to, to Jerusalem about twice. Eight days after Jesus was born, they were obligated by Jewish custom to go up to Jerusalem and have Jesus circumcised. That was about a uh, six-mile trip or four-hour walk. That's how close Bethlehem is to Jerusalem, six miles, four hours to walk. There was no expressway. You had to walk or go by camel if you wanted to, but very close. And even this joyful experience of circumcision for them, maybe not for Jesus, this idea of, you know, that they get all these weird people there at the temple. Simeon, who comes up and sees their baby and says, at last I can die for I've seen the Messiah. What a, how did that feel to Mary and Joseph and that odd expression there? And then uh, Anna, who, the prophetess who comes up and tells Mary a terrible prophecy that he shall you know, rule the kingdom but he shall pierce your heart. And they had this discussion on the way back to Bethlehem. It had been a very hard year for Mary and Joseph, but they had settled into something very routine. So Bethlehem, we're going to leave it right now, is a quiet, peaceful little town of enjoying where Mary and Joseph are kind of getting their life back together and settling in here. But let's go back now to the very moment Jesus is born. Let's travel 800 miles to Babylon. And on Babylon, on a, on a roof in Babylon, the servants are starting fires in these big pots on the, on the roof. They weren't trying to burn the building down. These are the kind of pots that you might find at the beach where we have our bonfires. There are four or five of these around the roof, and the servants would come up about five or six o'clock at night, load them with, with wood and fire, and start a huge roaring fire, four or five of these on the roof. By about nine or ten o'clock, they had burned down to hot embers, no light, just heat. That's what they needed for this cold night in, Bab in Babylon. Where these wise men called magi, very intelligent men, scholars in fact, would come up to, to look at the stars and look at the star charts and to see what was going on in heaven because what happened in the stars, they believed, preordained what happened on earth. They were astrologers and uh, um, all that. I'm not trying to say they were great people. They were wise and smart people, highly educated people. In fact, they were actually called kingmakers. They were the ones a king would call in to give him advice on what to do about certain situations. So these were people that were wise and smart and strong, and they were studying this charts, and it says, in the night that Jesus was born, a star appeared. So here the, these magi are studying their star charts, and their star charts were nothing more than big pieces of papyrus with circles on them, where they had followed, had written out all the traveling of the stars and where the, the moons were and all that. That's what they looked at. And they looked for something that was different from what they could see in the heavens. They had studied these things for a very long time, and they knew them quite well. And on this particular night, they had a new star appear in the east. And as it moved across into their sky, they began to argue about, where did the star come from? What does it mean? And they checked all their star charts. They got some old star charts up there. We sure looked them over. They could not figure out what was going on. So these magi were quite concerned that this must mean something. We've never seen a new star appear before. But here it was. And so not only did they study the stars at night, 
they studied their literature in the daytime in the library. Babylon probably had one of the finest libraries in the ancient world, along with Alexandria Library in Egypt. Because Babylon had conquered most of the known world at one point in their history, they had all the literature and all the, and all the stuff, and they had captured Israel at one point. And when the Jews came to Babylon, they brought their scriptures with them. So there would have been copies of the Old Testament in their library. So they began to go to their library and look and study for what could this star mean. And one of those scholars, one of those really good Bible readers and understanders, found this little tiny verse in Numbers. And it said this, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's from Numbers. How did he find that? Numbers twelve seventeen. You can read the scripture all day long and skip this little verse sometimes and say, it doesn't make much sense. Ah, move on. Let's find something else to read. But the scholar said, here it is. It talks about a star and a scepter. What does that mean? Well, a scepter speaks of a king and power. And a star talks about God ordained. This is a special experience. Since they found it in the Hebrew book of of, uh, Numbers, they figured this has to do with Israel. They knew about Jacob. They'd read the story. They had so many Jews in Babylon at one time. They've gone back to the promised land, these Jews did. These astrologers said, this is so unique. This is so special. We are kingmakers. We must find this king. And And the Bible says that these men were strangely drawn to follow the star. So they put together a caravan. In those days, you didn't just rent a caravan. You had to put one together. Remember, these guys are magi and astrologers, so they didn't exactly, they're not campers, okay? They, they don't go camp for the weekend. They had to buy their tents, get the camels, uh, get, get guides coming with them, get soldiers to go with them. And I believe that this group of, of magi, uh, much more than just three, perhaps, we, we go by three because there were three gifts. It's not that's it, just three gifts. That's all there was. There might have been a lot more. I mean, who brought the slippers? Okay? So there had to be more than just the three gifts. So they put this caravan together after about four four to six months, perhaps. Then they take off for Israel, following the star as their guide. That would have been a 40-day journey and 800 miles. No small undertaking at that day. Stopping every day. The tents being set up, meals being prepared, them discussing what they're going to do, noticing the changes in the land. I mean, they're out for a great trip, but they're also for a purpose. They want to find this newborn king. And I think they're assuming this king must be in Jerusalem because it talks in the Old Testament scripture about where the king might be. But they didn't know where or that he was. So as they travel along this road, they get to Jerusalem. And the implication from scripture is, When they get to Jerusalem, the wise men lose track of the star. They no longer see the star at this point, so they go into Jerusalem looking for directions, perhaps. I hate it when men stop for directions, but these guys did. And they they go into Jerusalem and say, where is the newborn king? Where is the newborn king? And when these magi, these king makers, were walking around Jerusalem saying, where is the newborn king? the very king of Israel got very upset. His name was Herod the Great. He could have also been named Herod the Horrible because he was a wretched, horrible king. But history calls him Herod the Great 
because of the monuments he built. We tend to do that in history sometimes. If somebody builds a great monument, we call him a great person. But Herod is far from great. He was not even a real Jew. His grandfather had converted to Judaism for the sake of gaining power. They bribed the Roman emperor so they could become king of Israel, gave him enough gold. He said, sure, you can lead Israel. Just keep the people quiet. And Herod did with an iron fist. He was so hated and so fearful of losing his kingdom that Herod had killed two of his own sons to retain his power. He heard two of his sons were plotting to take over, and he killed them. Caesar Augustus, who's the one who ordered the taxation and had Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, he is recorded as of saying that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's child. That's the reputation Herod had. So when these magi were brought in to talk to Herod, Herod says, what are you here? He said, we've seen a star in heaven, and we've come to find the newborn king, and we're going to christen him and worship him. And Herod becomes very fearful. And the Bible says all of Israel was fearful. You don't want to get a tyrant upset. And Herod was going to be upset by this news. So interestingly, Herod says, okay, as you guys go back in camp, I'm going to check with all my religious leaders and see what we can do to help you find it. Because it didn't happen here in, in uh, Jerusalem. We'll find out where. So Herod calls together all the high priests the the rabbis and the Sadducees and all those, and said, okay, do you guys know where the baby's going to be born? And their answer was, yeah, of course. Where's that? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. These leaders knew where Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, and they had these kingmakers in their very presence with that. So So Herod calls these wise men back and says, If he's born at all, it would be in Bethlehem, which is just right out the east gate, two mountains over, make a right at the fork. And and that's where Bethlehem will be. And by the way, if you find this kid, if you find this kid, send word to me, and I want to come and worship him as well. And so the Magi leave Jerusalem, heading for Bethlehem. And once they get out of the city gate, Guess what they see again? The star reappears. Once again, they're being guided by the star and by Herod's advice to go to Bethlehem. Not a single high priest or scribe or rabbi or government official went with the Magi. These are men are praying for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, wanting the Messiah to come. Kingmakers show up and say, we've seen a star. We were going to christen a king. And yet there's such a lack of interest, no one will walk the six miles to find out. Have you ever felt that way in your own life? Are you willing to go out of your way to find Christ? Are you willing to walk just six miles or six feet, whatever it takes, to commit your life to Jesus and all that? The religious religious leaders of, of Israel did not show any interest at all. They could care less. They simply pointed and just go that way, and no one followed. 
Well, I think as the Magi began to enter into the outskirts of Bethlehem, being on camels and donkeys and all the servants and soldiers and all, had to attract the attention of all the children from Bethlehem. And I can almost imagine these kids being little rude kids as they are, and you know, no, no, uh, no semblance of, of, of whatever, would run up to this caravan and say, where are you from? What are you doing here? What are you doing? I've never seen a camel this close up. What's going on here? The Magi would say, well, we're here to find a king. The chance that well, you, you missed it, Jerusalem is six miles back. This is just a little place for sheep and shepherds in a quiet little town. He said, but we were told that a newborn king would be born in Bethlehem. Is this not Bethlehem? Well, it is. So you're looking for a king? Well, let me tell you what happened to me about a year ago. I was watching my sheep, and I saw a great display of angels. And it was a marvelous experience. In fact, we went to a stable and saw a little boy being born that day. It was outstanding, and we, we just praised God for him. And it was this exciting thing. Is that the child you're looking for? Let's find out. So I know where he lives. And so they lead the Magi not to the stable, but to the home where Mary and Joseph are. Now, Mary's peaceful life, her idyllic life in a little small town, was about once again to be turned upside down. And the Magi arrived outside of her home. Mary must have not been excited, but maybe concerned. What are these people doing here? I don't have enough to feed them. You know, the whole crowd's outside. And as the Magi get off their camels and walk to the door, they walk into Mary's home. And the Bible says they laid prostate trait on the ground. That is, they put their faces to the ground, their hands out, and they worshipped a one-and-a-half-year-old child, the baby Jesus. The shepherds came to give adoration. The wise men came to give worship. If you think about it, the first people to worship Jesus were Gentiles. He was a child of Israel, but the first to kneel in front of him and praise him were Gentiles. So God had a place for us and a plan for us as well. After worshiping his child, I think, with song and praise and doing their things as magi of, of, of crowning him king the best they could, they gave Mary some wonderful gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gold, we know what it was. Uh, we all like some of that gold. I don't get much for Christmas, you know, um, but we love gold. And frankincense and myrrh were fragrances, and they were very expensive fragrances and mixed with beeswax and oils and all, and they could be used to heal for some wounds at times. But they basically were for just, you know, a celebration, the smell. The smell in Mary's home must have been overwhelmingly sweet and wonderful and delightful. I don't believe the wise men just simply walked in, said, hey, hi, Jesus, and walked out. I think they stayed for a while, maybe a couple of days, to worship, to talk to Mary and to Joseph, to get to know them a little bit better, and to just worship this young little boy and wonder, what kind of a king will he be? And Jesus accepted that adoration and that praise. So it was a really unusual experience, but it was time for the wise men to move on. And Mary is ready for them to move on too, I'm sure, because she's had so much going on. Again, her life is interrupted by all these weird things. And as the Magi pack up to go and get ready to head back, 
they have a bad dream. They have a bad experience. And they, they are told by, in their dream to do not go back home through Jerusalem. Go some other way. And so the wise men go home a different route, which for us, I think, gives us the idea of once we encounter Christ, do we go in our same ways? We walk a new way as well. We change our direction. We choose to walk in a way that honors God. These wise men walked in a different way. They went home a different way. And on that same night that the wise men left, once again, Joseph is troubled by angels. Angels bring great news, but I don't think Mary and Joseph are going to, no more angels, please. I'm sure they get a little bit tired of that. The angel said to Joseph, get up. Take your wife and the child and go to Egypt. Are you kidding me? The, go to Egypt? That's 90 miles away across a desert. He says, you must leave tonight. So I wonder what it was like for Mary. That he had to wake her up and say, we're leaving. When? Now. Where are we going? Egypt. I know no one in Egypt. We've never been to Egypt. It's a foreign land with a foreign language. Joseph said, we were told to go and we must go. So that very night, they pack up what they can. They put it on a mule. And the uh, Mary and Joseph start heading off for Egypt. Again, Mary's tranquil life is torn up. And sometimes when we're called to follow Jesus, it's not always the easy way. It was not an easy way for Mary or for Joseph. They were told to move and do this and do that. And sometimes they didn't like it at all, but they followed and obeyed God. Sometimes God calls us the same way. Do what I tell you to do, whether it's easy or not easy. So Mary and Joseph now, in the middle of the night, are taking their baby Jesus and the gold, frankincense, and myrrh and heading off to Egypt, a 90-mile journey for them. On that same night, Herod recognizes these wise men are not going to come back. They've tricked me. But notice Herod never sent somebody down to Bethlehem to find out. He's sitting in his palace, becoming angry and bitter, and says, I will solve this problem. He sends a writer to the Herodian, which is a Roman encampment, part of this wonderful thing that Herod had built earlier, sends a message to the Roman centurions and say, take as many men as you need, march to Bethlehem, and then the chilling part of the order was, you are to slay every male child two years or younger. These Roman soldiers were hard-bitten, hard soldiers. But how would they deal with this kind of a thing? Don't go and fight, fight rioters or fight another army or fight men rebelling against the king. Go kill a child. What Roman soldier did not feel this? It's an order from the pit of hell. But they went. As they approached that small village, no doubt the people in Bethlehem saw them coming and assumed they were just going to pass them by and head up to Jerusalem. But this group of men did not. They divide into two columns and surround the, the town completely. Once the circle is complete, the slaughter begins. Slowly at first, 
They begin entering into some homes, just pushing aside the curtains or the doors or whatever they need to do, checking to see what child was male or female. And if the child looked like he was two years old or younger, he was killed. It didn't take long for that to pass through all of Bethlehem and the shock of it as parents began to run, hide their children. What parent would stand by and watch their children be killed? Parents stood in the doorway. They defied these soldiers, but they could not stand against them. Not only were the male children killed, I think, in the bloodbath and the rush of it, any child that looked young was killed because things were getting out of control. Parents were screaming and writing and doing what they could. Parents were killed. Babies were killed. It was a horrible, horrible night. A horrible night. Not exactly your typical Christmas story, is it? A horrible experience. And I wonder what that meant to the Romans afterwards as they thought about it. Did they ever go back to the Herodian and wash the blood off their hands? This was Herod. This is what Herod is going to do to save his kingdom, was to destroy everybody that could oppose him, like his own children. Mary and Joseph go off to Egypt. How they survived, they had the means to survive if they needed to, perhaps. But then eventually they were called by the angel once again to go back to Israel, but they chose to go back to Nazareth, which meant that they would have to pass through Bethlehem on the way back. I wonder what it felt like for Mary as she passed through Bethlehem once again a year later. Why are there so few children? What happened to my girlfriends? What happened to that family over there? Why are there weeds around this home? And perhaps some of the people would let Mary know, well, while you were gone, the Romans came and slayed all of our children. What did that do to Mary's heart? Did her child cause this? No, it was the bitterness of a bitter king, the hatred of a king, the hatred of a king. Christmas is not always a joyous time for a lot of us. Sometimes we look forward to seeing our relatives, and sometimes we look forward to seeing our relatives go. You might be wondering, when would the locusts arrive? You know, they're going to be here for Christmas Day. For many of us, though, seeing family and friends is a good thing. Christmas does unite us. Christmas does give us a hope. Because in all of this history where the Mary and Joseph's lives are totally torn apart, where people are slain and killed, we need to remember there's hope in all this. Because in the midst of all this, God sent his messengers to protect his son, to protect Mary and Joseph, and to work out his will. And even though a ruthless king said he can overrule what God wanted, he could not. The Magi truly crowned him king, but he's crowned king really by God. He was our child. And Jesus gives us the hope that we need to get through this holiday season. It's hard. This can be a hard time. In fact, for most people, this is the hardest holiday of all. Sometimes a holiday can be hard when a loved one's passed away and you say, this is our first Christmas without them. Or someone's moved away. This is our first Christmas without them being nearby. And for some of us, it's just a hard holiday. Because we don't know what to do at Christmas other than buy something and give it to somebody else. But it's a time for family to come together like, and just rejoice and enjoy one another. 
That's our hope. My life has hope because of what Jesus did for me. The greatest gift of Christmas to me was finding Jesus Christ as my Savior. And oddly enough, I had to go about six miles. My cousins took me from Burbank, where I was being raised, to Van Nuys, to Youth for Christ rally. And when I heard about Jesus, I responded to that. The first time I heard about him in a way that he seemed alive and interested in my life, I said, yes, I want that gift in my life. And I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Nothing prophetic about the six miles. But I'm asking you, how far will you go to find Jesus? Will you go the 20 feet down this aisle to talk to a pastor or someone about, I need to find Christ in my life? Would you cross the street and talk to your Christian neighbor to see them? Would you walk across the street to your non-believing neighbor and say, can I tell you what makes Christmas great for me? Would you take that journey, not an 800-mile journey to Babylon or a 90-mile journey to Egypt, but simply a six-mile journey? When you think of how close Bethlehem is to to Jerusalem, and no one showed an interest, none, now you know what it was like for Jesus to present who he was to the people of Israel because the leadership of Israel's religious people said, you're not for real. You're not the Messiah. And yet, we have all these signs that he was. He is our Savior. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the gift of what we got at Bethlehem. I hope it's a gift for you as well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, when we read carefully in our scriptures, it's amazing how we can run over things so fastly and just run to the end of the story. But Father, the story is made up of real people and real experiences. They breathed air like us. They ate food like us. They got tired. They got joyful. They got fearful. They got happy. Father, I think about Mary and Joseph and all that they went through. All being torn up and moving all the time. And sometimes, Father, you demand a lot of us as well. But you know, Lord, that's okay. Because wherever you call us to go, you are there. Whatever you call us to do, you are there with us. So, Father, I would pray for each one here, including myself, Lord, that we not get caught up in the idea of just simply giving gifts, but of receiving the gift of your Son into our life. Father, Christmas is a joyful time, and it is. So, Father, may our joy be filled with knowing you as our Savior. You're loving us. You're caring for us. And thank you for this story that reminds us that to follow you does take a sacrifice, but also a blessing as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate you bringing us God's word. And sometimes it's a hard story to hear of uh, all that what went on in, in that time. It's a, definitely a, an eye-opener for us. Because what I keep going back to these uh, Israelites. Uh, they weren't just any average people that the king had in his court. Uh, they were Pharisees and Sadducees and people who knew God's word over and backwards. If you were a Pharisee, you had memorized the first five books of the Bible, word for word. You could recite it just like that. And they really appreciated that and just had a great time in that. Hi, guys. 
Um, but it, it's, uh, uh, what happened? I mean, they would sing songs, you know, they would sing songs in Hebrew and, and, and enjoy these times and talk about the promise of what was to come. The Messiah would be there. And, and somehow, you know, I said, oh yeah, he's, he's just down the road in Bethlehem. Like, no one cared to look, no one's waiting, making watch, maybe this is the time. Uh, and then when the Magi show up, these kingmakers, these ones that's so learned, they saw the star, they got the prophecy, and even the Israelite leaders, Jewish leaders, got it, and yet they didn't move. Blows me away. Thanks for bringing it up, Ron. It just, it was a, because what it does is, is, is it shows the reality that they had lost their hope. If you read Hebrew scriptures, it, it points towards the Messiah, this one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Israel had been through a tremendous amount of turmoil and struggle. They hung on to hope that Messiah would come. And yet at this point in their life, they had lost that. How come? How come? They went through the rituals. They sat in the ceremonies. They had Passover, which talked about this one Redeemer that would come. They had been through all of that. They, they went to sing the songs. Most of the psalms you read through are the hope of what's to come. And they lost it. And that makes me wonder, could, could I be like that? Could, could I be someone that has lost my hope? Did it, did it not sink into my soul? And the truth is, is, is hope is like a muscle. You've you got to exercise it. You've got to practice it and, and let the reality soak in and not just go through the motions, but actually let it permeate your heart and build within it a passion. Ron bring out two that were definitely passionate. Simeon, who was in the temple that day when, when, when Jesus came in and, and Anna as well, and they were full of joy because they saw the hope of Israel, the consolation of Israel, Simeon said, and held Jesus, woo, because he was waiting. He had put his hope in Jesus, in the Messiah. Well, let's not lose our hope. One of the ways we can move forward in our hope and massage that and do a little exercise is to actually delve into God's word and be reminded of all that is promised of Messiah Jesus, that we believe to be Jesus. And I encourage you to, to, to study God's word. And if it helps, we have these uh, devotionals there. They're called Advent devotionals. You know what Advent means now, that the, the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, his first coming here. Uh, these are great little uh, vignettes and, and scriptures that you can read there for one for every day. Boy, take this season of Christmas and make it make it a time where you really work out in the sense of understanding the hope of Christ. Especially if you're feeling hopeless and have come to that place where you believe in Jesus, you know the scriptures, you sing the songs, you let it soak in, take some moments. And I encourage you with it. They're free. They're in the lobby area. There, I encourage you to pick one up. If, but if you're like not so sure about Jesus, you haven't really came to that place where you believe in him trusted in him for your salvation or, or get it and you're searching you're seeking 
Yeah, you can walk six miles or 800 miles or that, but you or can you just walk through the door and grab one of these uh, next step packs. It's the next step in understanding that inside there, there's some booklets and a letter and all that to help you understand Jesus more and instill in you that hope. So I encourage you to pick one. Don't pick one up for somebody else. If you're searching, you pick one up. They'll be at the door. Ushers will be having them in their hands. You can just grab one and, and, and head off. You don't need to engage in any conversation. But certainly, if you'd like to talk about it, you can, on that connection card that uh, Victor talked about earlier, just say, hey, I'd like to talk to somebody about my, my journey with God or understanding Jesus more. And put your contact information there, and we'll get a hold of you this week or in the next week. And we, we'd love to sit down with you. I encourage you to don't let this Sunday go by. I know there are people in this room who are struggling in this area of hope. And you, you feel like you've lost your hope. Jesus wants to give it back to you. He wants to be the object of your hope. Not just pie in the sky and good thoughts, but actually hope in a person who can make a difference in your life. I know I was there. My life was in complete despair. I'd even thought about ending my life. And my friend brought me Jesus. Changed my life. Don't let this Christmas go by without the hope that will bring you incredible joy, peace, and a love beyond measure. We're going to move into a time of prayer. It's a, it's a reflection time for you to think about what has been talked about today and and maybe even talk to God about where you are in your hope of Him. And there are some people who are going to be taking their places. If you guys would come at this moment, some pastors and elders and prayer team members, and they're taking places around the auditorium, you can move now. Some will be up front, some in the aisleways, and, and that. And these people would love to, to pray with you. It could be about this area of hope and, and, uh, and that, or it could be just about anything that's on your heart and mind. You can come to one of us. We'd love to pray with you. You don't need us to pray. You can pray and talk to God right where you're at. He loves the sound of your thoughts. And he listens. He really listens. He knows your heart. So why don't you all stand? And as this song is being uh, played and sung, feel free to come and, and, and we'd love to pray with you, but certainly talk to God yourself. Let's take this time and connect with God.